You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. Hi, I'm very happy today to have a new guest, a very exciting guest, a well-known person in the internet mobile world, namely Hillel Fold. Hillel is a tech blogger, a mobile enthusiast, and a Twitter addict. Hillel contributes to such sites as the Huffington Post, Business Insider, Mashable, GigaOM, and others. His day job is senior evangelist at Interactive, where he writes daily posts covering new developments in the mobile industry. You can also read his personal thoughts on Tech N, that's the letter N marketing, one word. So, Hillel, welcome. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Hillel, my first question, I'm going to go right a little sort of how you got started in this. You live and breathe the Internet and all that is out there in the quote-unquote tech scene. Can you recall your various first exposure to this world and ultimately how it led you to be so active in this area? Sure. So unlike some of my colleagues uh, who were early adopters and were using cell phones or even computers before they were mainstream, I was actually a pretty late adopter. And while my friends were already emailing and instant messaging. I actually did not know how to turn on a computer. But once I did figure out kind of this world and uh, you know, became uh, familiar with, with the whole digital revolution, it was a, it was a very natural connection. And it wasn't, it wasn't long before I was, <laughs> I would say, completely addicted. Um, that was you know, back in the computer days. It quickly transitioned into uh, the mobile world, uh, where today I, I'd say my focus, the professional and personal focus and passion uh, lays in, in the mobile industry. Um, but uh, I think I started blogging back, uh, I don't know, 10, 10 years, a little less than 10 years ago probably when I was at uh, my first job out of college um, at Converse, which then was one of the biggest high-tech companies in Israel. And I'd say they're, they're undergoing some difficulty today, but uh, you know, at some point I was, I was writing documentation about the mobile and uh, the cellular technology that they were developing. And so uh, it, was, it was clear that I enjoyed writing. It was clear that I enjoyed mobile. So I said, why not put my thoughts down on, on paper, on virtual paper, on, you know, in a blog form? And uh, I really didn't have any um, commercial uh, goals, nor did I have any goals to kind of build a name. I just really wanted to just write down my thoughts. I, I didn't even think about you know, traffic or attracting readers. Just Again, writing, it was sort of like a personal diary, just writing my thoughts down. But very quickly, uh, I started attracting readers, I guess, because I simplify things. In other words, as a technical writer, you have to take very complicated technical um, products and uh, simplify them down so that anybody can understand them. And that's sort of what I do when I blog. I, I take sometimes high, highly technical um, you know, concepts and I simplify them down so that you know, anybody can read it. Uh, and so slowly but surely, uh, against, again, it wasn't what I had intended, but slowly but surely I started building up a, you know, an audience and um, haven't looked back since. That's that's great, and you've been a great success. Just uh, we'll get a little more about your blog later. But how many followers do you have? Uh, I'm opposed to that question. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really opposed. Okay. I'll tell you. Okay. I, my philosophy right. is uh, very much in the marketing world that that these numbers are, are borderline irrelevant. In other words, uh, I'll show you you know okay. messages that I have from people who have 300,000 followers more than me asking me to share their content because. Their, their audience isn't engaged. They're not really paying attention to what they have to say. I mean, on Twitter, I have some around 25,000. Google Plus, less than 50, a little less than 50,000. But 
the point is that I built them. I built those audiences up organically. I didn't. I didn't use any tools to try to like you know pay for followers or anything. Anybody that's following me clicked the button follow because they were genuinely interested in what I had to say. So you know my quote unquote CTR, my click through rate when I when I share content, you know very often I'll see much 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 higher traffic than some people that have much higher numbers than me. So the numbers don't really matter. It's it's more about quality than quantity, but. That, those are the numbers. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to just now go to your day job, as you call it. Um, we all know what apps are. I think everybody you talk to today, from little kids to adults, uh, at some point sit around and say, this would be the greatest app, okay? Uh, but p please tell us about your day job and where you help people monetize apps, actually, which I assume turn, turn these ideas and eventually apps into money. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, story. The company that I work for, Interactive, is a, is a startup uh, in Petr Tikva near Tel Aviv. Um, and, and they do indeed specialize in monetizing apps. Um, the concept is very simple. In the, in the app world, um, there are really two options if you want to generate money and build a sustainable business out of a mobile app. You can either sell that app for whatever it is, $0.99 cents or $1.99. And by definition, you know that your downloads will decrease significantly because at the end of the day, close to 90% of, of downloads of apps globally are free. People don't pay for apps. That's, that's a fact. So if you're going to charge for your app, you're going to end up losing because people don't want to buy it. So we have to think a little bit out of the box. So Interactive basically offers a very, very comprehensive solution where you'll offer the app for free. And you can choose between various, you know, what we call verticals or forms of monetization, whether it's advertising or it's uh, video in your app or it's search or it's um, in-app purchases or others to monetize the app in a more uh, effective way on the one hand and by not decreasing the user experience on the other. In other words, there are many people that offer advertising, but they pollute your app and they ruin the user experience, which is something that developers work you know, for years sometimes on enhancing. So that's the last thing we want to do. And at the end of the day, if you, if you ruin the user experience, then no one wins because the de developer ruins his app. The users won't click on ads if it's annoying to them. And nobody makes money and nobody's happy. So we're very focused on user experience and um, the most effective monetization solution for developers. Uh, that's in terms of the company. Now, what I do with the company is, is, is a very interesting, uh, I guess you could call um, new philosophy on marketing. Uh, you know, the company basically took a good look at the marketing landscape and, and just in general the way marketing works. And whereas maybe, you know, a decade ago, marketing was very about push. You know, it was about billboards. It was about yelling from anybody who will listen, telling them how amazing your product is and hoping that they'll convert, that they'll buy your product. Today in, in the social era, you know, where people have a voice, no matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are, who you are, you have a voice and, you ha and brands can't afford not to listen to you. Marketing has kind of transitioned into more of a pull more of provide value, listen to your audience, listen to your customers, and listen to what they want. And don't shove your message down people's throats. At the end of the day, by offering value, people will convert. And so you know, I write the company blog, and the company blog is not about the company. It's about the industry, about trends, about where it's headed, where it's been. Uh, you know, I, I contribute to other sites, like you said in the beginning. Again, all part of my job at Interactive. I meet startups every day, not, in, not companies that can necessarily um, work with Interactive. It's sometimes not even in the same space. But I help them with their marketing, help them with their positioning, sometimes with introductions to investors to, or to bloggers, other bloggers in the States. And I just, you know, again, provide value. And the philosophy is if you build it, uh, the brand, you know, the authority, the thought leadership, 
it will come, and it being you know the um, the branding and the conversions at the end of the day, because interactive via me and via via its own product and and other means uh, is building up a brand as a as a thought leader, and not as another company that's going to spam you and, and force you to like their page and ask you to retweet their tweets and any of that. But we, you know that you can come to the interactive blog or you can follow the interactive Twitter account, and you'll get quality content, and you won't get a sales pitch, and that's what people like. And at the end of the day, right now, fact. The interactive Twitter account has more than three times more than more followers than any of our competitors, no matter how big they are, including companies that are owned by by Google and other companies that work in the space of mobile monetization. Nobody has anywhere near as many followers or as engaged of an audience as Interactive does. And the blog is another example. We've so many, so many readers that read our blog. You know, people that are are, are writing for leading um, publications online, like TechCrunch. One of the writers told me that they read our, our blog religiously. Which, which blew me away because, again, we're a small little startup here in Petrofica, Israel, and he's obviously one, you know, writing one of the, the most influential um, tech publications in the world, and he actually reads our blog, which, which to me shows that we're, we're on the right road, we're on the right path. And so, again, I'm doing evangelism. I'm just spreading value to the, to the industry. And the truth is, I mean, the model is not a new model. You know, Guy Kawasaki did it for Apple years and years ago. Robert Scoble does it for Rackspace today. And it's, it's a proven model at the end of the day, and it's, it's a long-term thing. It's not a short-term thing. At the end of the day, it, it's, it brings back you know, branding and conversions, but, but it definitely takes time. No, and it also, just hearing you, and if I can try to synthesize, you know, that those, those people who th- think that, I mean, it sounds to me the app is part of the whole universe of the branding, the company, the mission, etc. Uh, those people who are dreaming of, just one-offing on an app and, and then retiring better have a day job, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not a speculation what you're saying. It's, it's fact. I mean, dry, right, dry right, numbers show right. that one out of every, you know, 10,000, 20,000 apps has even, a, even a, you know, a minimal success. You know, people hear about Angry Birds, but you have to realize that Rovio had 50 games before Angry Birds that failed. And for every one Angry Birds, there are thousands and thousands of apps that are actually great, but right. they fail for, for various right. reasons. So, I mean, it's... It's, you know, you got to be realistic when you develop an app. There's a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate that. Okay, let me move over again to now your night job, if we call it. Uh, and I'll start with a definition as I looked up in Webster's Dictionary. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines a blog as a noun. If it's a noun, a website containing the writer or group of writers' own experiences, observations, opinions, etc., and often having images and links to other websites. If it's used as a verb, it's to maintain or to add new entries to a blog. Now, it turns out this word has only really been around uh, for about the last 15 years. Um, what prompted you to be a blogger? I mean, you already said you, you, you just wanted to share your thoughts, but uh, let me ask you, you know, where, where has it led you? I know it, it's led you to meet some very interesting and, and famous people. So actually, it's very interesting. I was just watching an interview this week with uh, Kevin Rose, who is the founder of Dig, now works at Google Ventures. He was interviewing Evan Williams, who is the founder of Blogger, who coined that term who was then bought by Google, and, and he, led, he was then the founder of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he actually coined the term blog, um, but uh, it came from weblog. Uh, basically, like I said, a diary. Uh, and, and like I said, I, I did not have any commercial goals in mind when I started, but where it's led me has been actually pretty phenomenal. I mean, one of the, one of the decisions among many that, I've, that, I've used, that, I've, uh, that I made years ago to leverage my blog is to interview some of my mentors and some of the people that I look up to in life in general and in, t- in technology specifically. And um, 
simple. I connect with these people on Twitter and I send them, you know, interview questions by mail. And they obviously, being that they're famous and very busy, take time, you know, to respond. But then they end up sending me their their answers, and I and I publish it. And I've interviewed tens and tens of people that have that are literally, I mean, you know, from people like Alyssa Milano, who who you might know from Who's the Boss, you know, sure, of course, girl, but right. she's a famous actress, and Jerry Ryan from Star Trek, and um, Guy Kawasaki, who's you know leading again, he was the first evangelist for Apple, um, and huge journalists from the New York Times and from the Wall Street Journal, and endless personalities that have both inspired me and uh, people that I've learned from. Uh, and it's, it's unbelievable that, you know, again, this guy living in Beit Shemesh, Israel, can, can write a blog that doesn't cost me anything. You know, again, think about journalism and where it was 10 years ago and where it is today, right? I mean, to be a New York Times, you know, journalist, you have to be obviously someone. Today I'm sitting here interviewing these, you know, world-renowned leaders in their space from my living room in Beit Shemesh, Israel, and all I did was, use a free platform, WordPress, and a free platform, Twitter, to connect. And, and it's a done deal. I've interviewed the senior um, vice president of Google, Vic Kundatra, who's an unbelievable guy. I mean, he's, he's super responsive to his users, listens to everyone, and he's, he's, I mean, he's, you know, he's in charge of Google+, Plus, you know, Google's new social um, uh, platform. It's not really a platform, but it's another topic. But in any case, uh, the point is that you know, what, what the web and, and blogging and, and the social platforms have done to journalism is truly phenomenal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's led me to unbelievable places to connect with unbelievable people. Um, and, you know, just recently, for example, um, you know, I wrote, I, I wrote on Twitter, I tweeted that I was, and you know, I just bought a house and I'm looking for a shed. And so I was, um, Keter, who's a leading, you know, uh, shed maker, plastic furniture maker, reached out to me. They're a global company. They reached out to me from my tweet and they basically sent me a thousand dollar shed on them. Yes, I, I, I did see that. That was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, that's just one example. But, you know, a year or two ago, my wife and I flew to, to the States, stopped off in Italy, and I went to, in the airport. I, I walked into an electronics store and I tried on these uh, high end Bose earphones that are noise canceling earphones, and, they, and they, they blew me away. Uh, and so first thing I did was I tweeted when I got, you know, I landed, I said, I just tried on these Bose Q15 noise cancellation headphones and they blew me away. And within no time, Bose sent them over for free. Wow. And I, you know, I reviewed them and everything, but it's more about, you know, the company's listening, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not naive to believe that anybody who tweets they want something will get it. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm more impressed with the fact that they even heard me say that I want them than the fact that they sent them to me. Meaning it's a PR stunt. Everyone knows that they're sending to someone who has a following and that's fine. The fact of the matter is I worked for many, many years, seven, eight years. I'm writing every single day of my life, you know, rain or shine, no fever. I'm writing a blog post every day. And I didn't, there, was no, there was no, you know, ROI, return on investment then. Now I'm getting the return on investment. So people like to look at kind of the quote-unquote success now and say, oh, you know, why do you, you know, I, why can't I do it? Why can't I tweet? And they don't realize there was a lot of hard work that went into it. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't I'm not naive to believe that they, they're going to send it to everyone. But I'm more impressed with the fact that I tweeted that I want to shed and Keter heard me. In other words, they weren't following me before that or that I tweeted that I loved the headphones and Bose actually heard me because, you know, how often, you know, 10 years ago, how often or how easily could you reach out and actually reach one of these global humongous companies and actually reach a person that would, you know, engage and interact with you? It was not something that was, that was so heard of then and now it's completely normal. Right, you had, you 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 really had to have been a columnist for a major publication exactly. uh, to even be to get close to these companies. All right, let me let me move over to another topic. We're all aware of Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, Instagram, Pinterest, WhatsApp. In light of the fact that for most people there are only 24 hours in a day, 
that one sleeps a third to a quarter of that time, one works, eats, talks, etc. Where, in your opinion, should people be spending the bulk of their time on social media? That's a very good question. Uh, people like to talk about market share. You know, in the mobile space, people say, you know, Apple and Google have market share, and Nokia has left market share. And this is a new term, I think, that people are starting to use, and that's attention share. The point is, you know, at the end of the day, there are so many sites out there. It's not about market share. It's about attention share, because there's 24 hours in a day, and I can only spend X amount of time on the social web. So where do I spend that time? And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if Twitter and Pinterest are different. The question is, if a person now needs wants to engage on the social web, where are they going to go? It doesn't matter that they're different platforms. You need to grab my attention. So the truth is that all these social platforms are direct competitors of each other. Uh, now in terms of, my, you know, it really depends on your goals. I mean, all in all, I would say the most effective platform for me has been Twitter. But uh, it really depends on your goals. If, if, if traffic is your goal, you're trying to get as many eyeballs to your, to your website as possible, that's one thing. If you're trying to sell, that's another thing. If you have a visual product as opposed to a, content-based product, and you know, Pinterest is for you. But uh, the, I would say what's most interesting about this space, um, and I guess the listeners will find this as a complete shock, uh, and probably there aren't many people out there that would, that would be of this opinion, but if you're asking me my opinion, I think the best-kept secret of this whole social world is actually Google+. Uh, the truth is the numbers show that it's actually number two right after Facebook. But putting that aside, because again, numbers aren't necessarily what matter, the engagement is, I know that I'll share, often I'll share the same article, the same picture on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and I'll get 30 to 40 comments on Facebook, maybe 50 to 100 retweets, and easily 5,000 shares, or 5,000 plus ones on Google+. Wow. I mean, that's, that's not something that's unheard of at all. It happens to be probably once a week. I mean, I've had, I've had posts on Google+, that have gone completely, completely viral, to the point that my friends you know, in the States, or even in Asia, are, are sharing this picture, not even knowing that it's my picture. It's happened to me. It happened to me this week. I took a picture I, of years ago. I took a picture of uh, a pizza store in Modine called Giant Pizza. Oh, they made, sure. Of they, made a, they made an Angry Birds pizza for me uh, years ago, two years ago, and I tweeted it. And Angry Birds, the company, I remember that. Uh -huh. It went completely viral. And this week, a friend of mine in Asia wrote me, and she said, I tweeted this picture, and people started writing to me. Do you know that that's Hillel's picture? And she had no <laughs> idea. And we're friends. Uh -huh. And this is all because of Google. Google has helped me helped some of my content go completely, completely viral, not to mention, by the way, that the Google team, anybody in Google who's even remotely involved in this project has, you know, listening around the clock. I mean, literally, I'll, I'll write something, a complaint or, you know, just, you know, feedback on the, on the user experience or something or a feature on Google+, and I'll, I'll get a comment within a minute and a half from the, the VP engineering who's in charge of Google+, telling me, Telling, calling the right people to pay attention and implement my, my feedback. And this happened to me today, literally. Like, you know, I, I, I gave a comment about whatever. It was the, co the commenting system, sorry, the notification system on Google+. And Vic Gundatra, who I told you I interviewed, uh, then CC'd two of the people, the lead on the team who's in charge of uh, notifications. And within a few minutes, they were, you know, engaging me back and forth. And they told me my feedback is valuable and they're going to actually implement what I told them. So, I mean, that's just, can you imagine Mark Zuckerberg doing that or, you know, uh, Evan Williams or, uh, you know, Dick Costello? No, but, but I think it is, it is absolutely fascinating that what you tell about Google Plus because I think a lot of my contemporaries just sort of view it as a lot of people, you know, use Gmail. But they they just sort of see that Google Plus maybe as an annoyance or something, you know, and they have no idea what what it's about. So uh, this this is a big uh, big breaking news for my listeners. So I thank you. Sure, I mean it's 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 new. It's still getting started, but I think it's it's going to be huge.
All right, so let, let's move uh, now to the hardware side of the, of the world also you live in. In my opinion, going to an Apple store is one of the most satisfying consumer experiences one can have. People who own an iPhone, an iPad, a Mac never seem to complain about their devices, yet Wall Street is starting to have their doubts about Apple post-Steve Jobs. What's your take on Apple's future? Is it bright or are its best years behind it? Well, first of all, when it comes to Apple retail stores, I don't know if you, if you read the Steve Jobs book, but that's actually a crazy, very, very interesting story. When Steve Jobs wanted to go retail, you know, there were really no Apple, there were no computer makers who had retail stores. They all you know, had their little shelf in Best Buy or Radio Shack or you know, compact computers, HP, Dell. There was no such thing as a Dell store. And so when Steve Jobs pitched the board to have retail stores, they literally shot him down right away and he said, absolutely not. And so he went for months building literally building a demo store where um, he would actually, he actually, you know, being Steve Jobs, he had a, a very specific uh, concept for what he wanted this store to do. He said, I want to come into an Apple store, and within a split second, I want to understand the flow. I, you know, here, if I, if I want iPads, I go here. If I want iPods, I go here. Here's where I pay. Here's where I go at. And I said, he said, if, if within a split second, the consumer doesn't understand the flow of the store, then we lost them. We did a bad job. And, and that's why you know, it's unlike any other retail store because they really focus on the experience. And at the end of the day, Apple's retail success has been unprecedented. It's the highest uh, revenue per square meter in all of New York City, higher than Macy's, higher than that's just the Fifth Avenue store of Apple. It's a tremendous success. Mm -hmm. So you're not alone in that, in that, in that experience and that feeling. But, um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my MacBook Air and my iPod, I mean, my iPhone 5 looking, sitting right next to it, and my iPad mini next to that, and my iPad you know, full size next to that. And I'm, I'm, a pretty mu I'm pretty much sold on Apple products. I, I pretty much vowed that I would never go back to Windows. And that's not because I'm a fanboy, like they say. At the end of the day, anybody that can't recognize the polish and the uh, implementation and the uh, attention to detail in Apple products, um, you know, is kidding themselves. At the end of the day, there's no computer out there that, that, that uh, performs like a MacBook, you know, Pro or Air. And there's no, you know, and Android is great for what it's great for, but the, the level of polish in, in, in the iPhone in general, with, with a few exceptions, don't get me wrong, there are things that are better about Android, but at the end of the day, the polish that you get from an iPhone, and, and you know, with all these people that I've interviewed, one of the questions I ask them is which phones they use, and almost across the board, everyone's using iPhone. So it's great, you know, Android's, you know, gaining market share because it's the whole Windows versus Mac thing again. They're licensing out their software to, you know, hundreds of OEMs or tens of OEMs, you know, everyone's making Android devices, so it's, it's, a hundred, you know, a thousand devices against one device. So you can't really, you're comparing apples and oranges, you know, no pun intended, but mm -hmm. it, there's no comparison. So uh, let's, let's, you know, put that aside for one second. In terms of Apple um, and Wall Street, I mean, you know, their, you know, their stock was through the roof. It was, it was just insane how high it was getting. And many people believed it was a bubble. I don't know, bubble or not bubble, but um, I, I want to believe that you know, I don't think it's a Steve Jobs thing. I don't think Steve Jobs was the company. I think maybe Steve Jobs brought a culture to Apple that he, he did leave behind. Um, and I do want to believe that, at least for this foreseeable future, that's not going to change. Um, having said that, uh, the latest, you know, product releases, um, you know, just the latest keynote, iOS 7, which completely redesigned and changed the entire experience. I'm, I'm using iOS 7 right now. You know, it's, it's which, which I read in one of your pieces. You, you really liked it. I do really like it. It's a complete change. It's in beta. You know, it's, not, it's not publicly available. And it, because it's not publicly available, they're, getting, you know, they're working on getting feedback so it's for, for developers, so it's very, very buggy. Uh, but putting those bugs aside, because, again, those are going to be fixed, I, I, I do enjoy the design, the redesign, the re, 
you know, it's rethinking of the whole philosophy. It's, it's totally different. But I, I do think that the, the feeling that I once got when I would watch Apple keynotes, Steve Jobs, you know, announcing the iPhone or the iPad, that wow moment. Yes. I'm not sure that Apple can still deliver that. I don't think, and I don't know if it's a function of Apple or more a function of kind of the, the market saturation of where else can we go. You know what I'm saying? In other words, there are trends that we're going to see, and then Apple just trademarked uh, the iWatch. You know, they're going to release wearable computing and jump on that trend. I'm sure they will. But I, I'm not convinced that they can have that wow moment that they had in 2007 when they announced the iPhone and changed everything forever. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely I'm far from losing faith in, in Apple in terms of their ability to innovate and, uh, and release exciting products. But their latest keynote was not um, as exciting as, as previous years, especially those when uh, Jobs was, uh, was actually giving the keynote. Okay, so staying on this topic... Um, I recently read an excellent piece in Forbes about Lenovo, which, as you know, is a Chinese company. Uh, years ago, they bought from IBM their PC line, and, and they have a real vision uh, to have a very relevant product line, even following in, in Apple's footsteps to have a retail outlet. Do you think, in general, though, laptops are going the way of eight-track players? Um, it's a difficult question. I don't have a, I don't have a yes or no answer mm-hmm. to that question. I will say, though, that I find, on a personal level, I find myself... You know, when I get home, I don't look at my laptop. I'll, I, don't even, I don't even pick up my iPad anymore. I pick up my iPad mini or even my iPhone. And because 99% of the things that I need to do, whether it's Skype, email, social activity, um, music, pictures, you know, it's all available on a mobile device or a tablet. Having said that, we're not there yet in terms of photo editing, real hardcore photo editing and document editing, writing long documents on a on a touch screen, you know, small device or even a tablet is not there yet. I do have Bluetooth keyboards for my tablets, you know, where I can actually type on a keyboard. But again, because of its small size, you're very limited. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I think, first of all, I do think desktops are, are, are gone. I mean, I, I don't see any need whatsoever for, for a desktop today. I haven't used mine in months. Um, in terms of laptops, I would say the, the smaller form factor laptops, like the MacBook Air, the Ultrabooks now with some Windows 8 devices that are touch screens, you know, it's, it's a hybrid between a tablet and a, and a PC. I think, the, you know, the, the, the laptop in, in its original form, you know, when we thought of laptops, these big machines that used to, like, schlep around, they're hard right, to carry, right. they're heavy. Those, are, those are, are, are on their way to extinction, I think. But I don't think laptops, you know, as in a computer that, you know, you know is portable, has a keyboard, a full, full keyboard and a full screen is extinct. I think there's still a need. I love, if I could choose, honestly, if I could choose one device across all my kind of Apple uh, portfolio, I would say, I would, I would, no doubt I would choose my MacBook Air. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic device. But again, it's so, so thin and so light, it's, it's more like a tablet in a way. But uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, in, in that form, I don't think laptops are dead yet. That's fascinating. And uh, I still like my, my uh, laptop. But, but uh, the Apple products, I think, certainly uh, are very tempting for anybody who even who's been living in the Wintel world for all these years. I know from one of your postings, your blogs, you recently checked, tested out Google Glass. What's your take? Are we going to abandon our handheld devices for these quote-unquote geek devices? I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about Google Glass and wearable computing in general. Um, people think, like you said, of it as this geeky thing, but the utility and the, um, I guess, you know, the value that anybody, the average consumer, gets out of these devices are, is actually phenomenal. And I'll give you a very simple example. You know, if you're holding a baby, you know, your, your daughter, your son, you're holding an infant in your hand and he smiles for the first time or he takes his first step. 
By the time you take out your camera or your phone to snap that picture, that smile is gone. That moment is gone. Whereas if you have Google Glass on, the kid smiles. There's no need to take out your, your camera and stick it in front of his face in between you and him. You say, okay, Glass, take a picture, and it's done. There's no delay. There's no issues. It's done. That picture is saved forever. You can then say, okay, Glass, share that picture with anybody you want, and it's shared. I mean, it's just instantaneous. There's no barriers, and it's, it's a lot more natural. You know, the same thing goes for searching Google. You know, it, it actually is it's, it's ridiculous. Why do I have to pull my phone out of my pocket and say, okay, Glass, search whatever you're searching, but it's done. And, and the same is true, and Google actually pitched this as um, the savior for those, you know, dinners or whatever it is when you want to, people are taking out their phones and talking and looking at their phones during dinner or during whatever meetings. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'd buy that because at the end of the day, what's the difference if you're looking at your phone or if you're looking into the air at the Google Glass screen? But it is, at the end of the day, much more natural to use voice and touch and other uh, ways to interact with a device and, to, and to having to stare at your... And think about driving. You know, people say, oh, people are going to drive with Google Glass. But if you think about it, we're all using GPS. We're all looking down at our phone to see where our next turn is. With Google Glass, it's not, you have to understand, it's not in your eyesight. It's to the right side of your eyesight, like in a hologram kind of thing. And it can tell you turn-by-turn navigation without having to look down at your phone. So in reality, in my opinion, it's actually a lot, more, a lot safer to drive with Google Glass than to drive with your average cell phone. Uh, so if, if you're asking me if Google, if, uh, Google Glass and other forms of wearable computing will take off, the answer is an absolute yes. There's no question about it. And when I tried it, I was beyond blown away. It was, it was really, really impressive to me on so many levels. And uh, I'm trying my best to try to get one for, you know, then it was a review unit. I was just testing it out. But I'm trying my best to actually get one. I would, I would absolutely wear it all the time. Well, it's it's interesting because I, there is a TED video that was that came out about a month ago with Sergey Brin. Uh, sharing his vision, why he developed the uh, Google Glass, which was that he felt too many people are just looking down and missing a lot of the world around them. And, and, and I later heard just about a week or two ago, uh, I'm, as you know, I'm from Chicago, and I was listening to a sports talk show about the Stanley Cup Finals. And the, final, the last part of the game, the game that the Blackhawks won the championship, uh, there were two goals within 17 seconds. So one of the callers said he actually missed both goals because he was getting a tweet from a friend and he was reading the tweet and he missed the, you know, he missed the moment. Uh, so if he was wearing Google Glass, he would have gotten both the tweet and watched those two goals. So I think you're, uh, I, I also think it's, it's, it's coming and I think people, uh, it'll be good for people not to be, you know, always looking down at their handhelds. Yeah, I definitely think so. Another product there's a lot of talk about, we hear a lot about uh, integrating what we get on our handheld devices into a new generation of watches. Uh, if it's Apple, if it's Sony, is that the next product we are all going to want to have? Again, I think it's, the same, it's part of the same trend, wearable computing. Uh, it, makes, it makes a whole lot of sense, and, I, and now I think it's pretty much um, you know, a done deal. Apple will I think will be releasing their, their watch. I mean, they trademarked iWatch. Uh, Pretty globally this week, so that's that's pretty much a no-brainer. Um, you know, there's so many watches out there. Best Buy is trying is starting to sell the Pebble this week, which is you know a full, I guess, mobile device uh, on your watch. Uh, yesterday, uh, Bigelow wrote an article about a uh, Kickstarter project that um, is basically a very very simple watch for kids, for parents to be able to SMS them and call them and uh, or notify them of something on their watch. Uh, and listen, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, hot trend right now. I don't think there's any doubt that it will take off. 
Uh, but I think, you know, it will probably evolve just like the cell phone evolved. But in terms of it going mainstream, I think there's no doubt. Okay, so we're going to be having uh, high-tech w- watches and glasses, uh, according to, to your view. Okay, finally, uh, and then I have just one other question after this, but if we're still on the tech side, what products, technology are you most excited about these days? Um, well, I mean, no question, hands down, the, the most uh, interesting to me is um, is Google Glass. But, uh, I mean, the product that I, I most need, I think, that, that anybody, who, anybody who's anybody, you know, everybody's on a mobile device today and everyone suffers from this is, is some serious innovation in the battery uh, space, you know, in terms of battery life. Right now, the best any of these companies can do is release a bigger phone so that they have more room for a bigger battery. Like the you know the Samsung Samsung Galaxy Note line, they have the Note 2, which is a I think a 3,200 milliamp hour battery, which lasts days and days. But that's only because it's a tremendous, physically a tremendous battery. Nobody really is innovating in terms of building a battery that will last like those old Nokia phones lasted you know three weeks. Uh, that's something that I think everyone needs. That's a one and two on the durability side in terms of waterproof and. Um, unbreakable Gorilla Glass, you know, bendable screens like Samsung's about to release and all kinds of things like that. In terms of durability of phones, that's something else that we can expect to see uh, happen in the near future. Um, but in terms of uh, things that excite me, I mean, um, the hottest thing that I've seen in Israel, or actually anywhere, uh, is a company in Israel called U-Move. They're a Jerusalem-based uh, company that have developed... What actually is pretty magical, and I think it, you know, you're listening. How do you how do you how do you spell that? It's U M like Mary O O V like uh, Venezuela E dot M E is the, is the URL to the webpage. Um, but basically, what they've developed is actually hard to believe unless you see it, and I actually did not believe it until I saw it. But it's software based eye tracking on a mobile device. So think Microsoft Connect without the camera, meaning there's no need for a special camera. And in a mobile environment, which is always changing, you know, the, the connect sits in your living room, and you know, you're sitting in the same room with the same, you know, um, everything's the same, same environment, it's completely static. Whereas a mobile device, sometimes you're in the dark, sometimes you're in the light, you're wearing sunglasses, it's sunny, everything changes, and yet this thing tracks your eyes and your head movements in real time, to the point that you know you can play a 3D shooter game by controlling with your eyes. You can go skiing, you can ski on your on your phone, on your tablet using your eyes. Uh, that's that's one manifestation, you know, implementation of it. But think advertising. Think special needs people that don't have access to can't use their hands. Now they can control their device with their eyes, and it's it, it actually is pretty magical because it, because it works. Meaning, you know, people used to say that Apple products they just work. This actually works. It's actually truly phenomenal to watch me hold my device and actually control it using my eyes and my head. Um, so these guys, like I said, are based in Jerusalem, and you know they're 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 working on some some pretty big partnerships, and I'm expecting pretty big things from them. But uh, I think eye tracking in general, nobody does it like they do it. There's no hardware involved. Again, it's all software based. Any phone with a front facing camera can do this. It's phenomenal. Uh, they're they're the leader right now. I don't know anyone that does anything like this. I think that this is a very big trend we're going to see because if you think about it, you know we all controlled our our devices with a click, you know, with a mouse, and then it became you know a touch. Uh, Steve Jobs didn't invent it, but he was the first to bring you know touch and multi-touch and swiping mainstream to the mainstream you know uh, masses. Uh, so it was first it was a click, then it was a touch and a swipe, and now you know you move is working on in addition to those. It's not supposed to replace that, but in addition to t- touching and swiping with your phone, you could actually look at it and and control it that way, and that's you know mind-boggling. I think that's something we'll see a lot of. You know, Samsung released their own product in the Galaxy S4, which is a completely different product, but. Um, 
the same concept. Apple releases, it released in iOS 7 the ability to select certain things using head gestures. So again, this is something that we're going to see a lot more of, but Umove, um, in my opinion, is the most exciting company out there. Wow. Okay, let me just uh, digress, uh, and we're going to wrap things up with this. Uh, and I'll bring you a, also something that I'm aware of. Uh, I have a son-in-law who works for a, a very well-known large Israeli company, and when he started work, he, he discovered on his his uh, workstation he couldn't access Facebook, he couldn't access Google, he couldn't. Uh, all kinds of sites uh, were blocked, um, but he had his handheld device, so it sort of uh, made the whole corporate policy moot. Now, we know that people are at work doing, they're engaging in social media, they're engaging with their friends, family. Um, how do you find that cor the corporate world is dealing with this uh, in terms of the fact that it's, you know, people sort of have a, a, a one foot out the door through their social media um, because they've got these handheld devices? Well, I think there's two sides to this coin. On the one hand, it definitely is a threat in terms of, you know, um, enterprise security. There's this trend of bring your own device and, and connect to the, you know, the company's system, whatever it is they're using. You know, there is a risk here because anybody can access anything. And leaking information, you know, obviously we saw this whole story with uh, the NSA. And everything's much more accessible today and, and much more uh, easily distributed. So, you know, you can... Uh, that's to the good and to the bad. The revolutions that are happening today in the world because of social media. On the other hand, it's very easy to distribute content that should not be distributed. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that it, it enhances the workspace because, again, there's this bring-your-own-device. It used to be, you know, only Blackberries were allowed because of their security, and now, obviously, that's less relevant. People can bring their own devices and hook up, you know, over the Internet to whatever it is, their enterprise server, and with the top-level security, and it's less of a problem. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's... I think it's more like if you can't beat them, join them. There's no way you're going to be able to block this whole social revolution, this whole mobile revolution. Users are on social media. Users are on their mobile devices. They need access. You know, it's become a necessity. And you know, any enterprise that's going to try to block that and, and prevent the users or their workers and employees from, you know, leading their their social and mobile lives, they're going to end up losing. You can't you can't block. It's it's become such natural behavior that it would be impossible to, to prevent. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful, as I knew it would be. Uh, if people want to follow you, uh, can you tell them where they should be looking? Sure. sure. My Twitter is at Hillsfold, H-I-L-Z, like zebra, F-U-L-D. Um, and that's uh, on, on Twitter. I'm going to search for my name, Hillsfold, on Google+, and uh, you know, LinkedIn, etc. All right. So we thank you, and we look forward to seeing how your predictions work out. And uh, it's been a most enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.